You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey guys, before this episode starts, I want to talk about some pretty cool news. Oki Investigations now has its own website. It's truecrime.blog, and it is a running blog for crime stories and for this show. So if you're a true crime buff and you want to see some cool things that we gathered while researching each show, including a like timeline of events that we put together, uh, newspaper clippings, court documents, and much, much more, come check us out at truecrime.blog. One, two, three, and... Hello, everyone, and welcome to Oki Investigations. My name is Trevor Shelby. In this episode, we're going to take a look at a story of murder, jailbreak, and in his flight from justice, more attacks and murder during a nationwide manhunt. In this episode, we'll discuss what happened, why, and what happened since. But first... If you're a first-time listener to experience this podcast to its finest, hit that subscribe button so when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. Then, head on over to our Facebook page. Here we can discuss the case together and perhaps come up with our own theories on the many cases that will be featured on this show. You can find us at facebook.com forward slash Oki Investigations. I hope everyone's been well. It's been a pretty great week for me. My kids started school back this week, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, this show has been doing pretty great. I've been amazed at the response I've received so far. If you've ever wondered what goes into making one of these episodes, it's just a pile of research. I really enjoy digging through it all and putting the pieces together. Our last few episodes alone was a lot of documentation and reports and everything we had to dig through but as I start to go through it all I start to see the narrative and that allows me to write the story this week's show was supposed to be about another crime but when I started putting this one together for a future show I felt this wouldn't be much more fun to do right now so I hope you guys enjoy it it's February 10th 1979 imagine if you will you're out for a drive with your spouse. You haven't seen your brother in a while, and you decide to stop in for an unannounced visit. You pull up to his house, and in the driveway is a car you don't recognize. Perhaps they already have visitors. You park your car, you walk up and knock on the front door, and no one answers. You try the door handle, and it's unlocked. As you walk into the home, you have no idea. You're leading yourself and your spouse to death's open arms. Scared to think how fragile life can be. Every decision we make could unknowingly be our last. It's scary enough to keep you up at night if you think about it too much. The couple was John and Roxy Seward, and their brutal murder would spark one of the craziest stories in Oklahoma's dark history. 68-year-old Delphia Warren and her husband Del Warren returned home around 4.30 p.m., 
As they pulled up in their driveway, they noticed something odd. A vehicle was in their driveway. Miss Warren thought it was her brother-in-law's car, but they weren't really too sure about it. They walked up to their front door, and then, as they opened it, they knew instantly that they had been robbed. The house was a mess, and things were just tossed about carelessly. Wondering if the thieves were still in the house, Mr. Warren checked everything room by room. Miss Warren decided to wait outside and wait for her husband to finish. As time went on, she began to worry. Had the robbers got to jump on him? But soon enough, her husband walked out the front door, pale and worried. He looked to his wife and told her someone's dead in the basement. Miss Warren thought of her brother-in-law. She again looked at the car in the driveway, but she still wasn't sure. They didn't re-enter the home. The police arrived shortly after, and when they went down to the basement, they found not one, but two bodies downstairs. When detectives informed Mr. and Mrs. Warren, Miss Warren rightfully feared for her brother-in-law and his wife. The couple who died were indeed the Warrens' brother and sister-in-law. The news of this double murder spread quickly through law enforcement in the state. This burglary looks a lot like the one made recently all over the county. The murdered couple were missing their wallets, and an odd assortment of things were taken from the home. Police were on the lookout for vehicles that may be transporting stolen goods. The night of the murders, a truck was reported to police to have been speeding through residential neighborhoods in East Muskogee. Residents thought the truck was exceeding 100 miles an hour. County Sheriff Deputy Ralph Rose was one of the first to spot it in the area. He turned on his lights and to his surprise, they began to run. Faster and faster they went through these residential neighborhoods, but as quickly as it started, it abruptly ended. The officer detained the couple in the truck and placed them in the back of a patrol car. He then started to search their truck. Now, this officer is about to experience something you don't often see as a police officer, but this vehicle contained two bloodstained blindfolds, a man and woman's wallets, and a bunch of packed cut meat. This officer was paying attention to what was going on around him, and he knew that the wallets contained the IDs of the couple who were murdered earlier that day. And one of the other things that was reported stolen was a bunch of custom cut meat from a local butcher. Through the suspect's IDs, the officer identified the two suspects as Charles Troy Coleman and Janetta Coleman. When asked, they stated they were not married, despite the same last name, but they were dating. Turns out Janetta Coleman and Charles were brother and sister-in-law. Now to quote my wife, who's from Kansas, that's the most Oklahoma thing I've ever heard of. But don't worry, I informed her why it's so windy in Oklahoma, and she proceeded to not talk to me for the rest of the night. Now, a lot of things happened in a short amount of time, so we're going to kind of reiterate everything, kind of go over it all. Two people were brutally murdered during a robbery. Their bodies were left at the bottom of the stairway into a basement. The suspects were caught later on that same day with evidence that ties them to the scene. One thing that they didn't have, however, was the murder weapon. Now, little is detailed about this early on, but one of the best things at this point for police was they needed to find the murder weapon. This would set up a first-degree murder charge pretty well. They could seek it without it, 
but the Colemans could argue that they didn't have possession of the weapon, and it was obvious because on the same day, they were without it. Officers started combing the area around the murder scene. They walked the county roads, looked in grassy areas to see if the gun had been ditched. But after several days of searching, they came up empty-handed. It wasn't until police questioned Charles' brother, Dell Coleman, about the weapon. Dell knew that his brother was in a lot of trouble, and he, in fact, knew what happened to the shotgun because, well, he was the one that got rid of it. According to Dell, Charles came to him asking him to help him get rid of the shotgun. Dell, trying to be a good brother, agreed and took the shotgun to a bridge over Grand River. There he ditched not one, but two shotguns. The next day, the police found the weapons along the side of the river. It was at this time the police split up Charles and Janetta Coleman and started using them against each other. Janetta quickly confessed to her involvement in the robbery, but not the murders. She turned on Charles in exchange for her testimony. She would not be charged with murder. Janetta would only be charged as a material witness and was let go. By April 22, 1979, the district attorney was ready to proceed with the trial of Charles Coleman. The prosecution brought the court the evidence tying the suspect to the crime. They also brought Janetta up to testify that she knew of the murders. She was able to testify that Charles left their home about 3.30 p.m. with his shotgun the day of the murders. Janetta stated she was not present when the murders took place, but she knew that Charles was. This set up what would have been a June trial. Typically, justice is never fast. Trials can suffer through delay after delay and can stretch on and on forever. But this one had a delay, but not one that you would expect. Now, working at a jail is no easy task. I speak from experience. I used to work in a county jail, one that was poorly built, horribly funded, and understaffed. If something happened while you were working, it was your fault. Never those in charge of the whole mess. So Muskogee Jail had an odd sort of a setup, and William Green, who was a trustee inmate, had thought of a way to escape. But he was in jail for a lesser charge, and he didn't really need to escape. Charles learned of this idea and used William to help put it to the test. So one day after visitation, the inmates were left alone in the visitation room. Charles had requested to speak to a minister. The guard who was assigned to these inmates left them in visitation for several hours after the visits were over. With Charles's help, William was able to get to the ceiling where he was able to open a hole in the poorly designed roof. Charles was able to crawl through the hole to the roof where he escaped. The trustee inmate then tried to hide the evidence of the escape. Now, Charles was a man on the run. He didn't know the area very well and he needed a car. So he slowly worked his way through a nearby neighborhood and found a house where the front door was unlocked. Checking, Charles could see a man sleeping on a sofa. Nearby were his pants. He slowly entered the home and grabbed the pants. He could hear the twinkling of keys in the pants so he knew that he had the keys to their car. He snuck back outside and then emptied the pockets. He left the pants on the front porch and took their car. 
Charles Coleman wasn't spotted until the next day when he was driving through Luther, Oklahoma. The officer pulled Charles over, not knowing who he was, and brought him over to his patrol car. He had him sit in the front seat, and he pulled out his ticket book to start writing a ticket. It was then he saw the knife. Charles slashed the officer's throat, and then grabbed the officer's service revolver. The officer fell out of the car, and Charles came over and told him not to move. The officer froze, and Charles handcuffed the officer and placed him in the back of the vehicle. Charles drove the officer a few miles from the scene, where he stole the officer's shotgun and destroyed his radio. Luckily for the officer, the slash to the neck was not fatal. Now Charles made his way to Crossroads Mall in South Oklahoma City. He was spotted in the area looking for a car to steal. The one he chose was an abandoned car that had not yet been towed. Now Charles wasn't going to wait around in Oklahoma to get caught again. He decided that he would be headed back to California where he used to live. On his way, he was again pulled over by a sheriff's deputy in Tucson, Arizona. When the officer approached the vehicle, Charles caught him off guard and pulled a gun on him. The officer was then handcuffed and placed in the back of Charles's truck. He drove him a ways down the road and then kicked him out of the car. I'm guessing the thought here was he's going to let the officer go. He didn't want to really kill him. But he did, however not want to get caught and by letting the officer out of his vehicle several miles away from his car he wouldn't be able to radio for help little did charles know the police were in a helicopter watching what was going on and sending backup to arrest charles he was captured without incident they quickly figured out who he was and they charged him with kidnapping and assault Charles was now the suspect of another murder in Oklahoma. Another robbery gone wrong in Tulsa, Oklahoma resulted in the death of Russell Lewis Jr. This happened while Charles was on the run and after he slashed the throat of the officer and stole his gun. Now Charles was extradited back to Oklahoma where he was to stand trial. The trial was consisted of Charles Coleman's family testifying against him, Janetta, who was now dating Dell Coleman, Charles's brother. Yeah, I didn't tell my wife about this part. She testified to what she knew of the murder and Charles's actions. Delphia Warren testified how they found their home robbed and finding her brother and sister-in-law dead in the basement. Then a ex-cellmate also testified against Charles and stated he often bragged about his many crimes. The defense tried to argue that the timetable that was presented made absolutely no sense. There was no way for Charles to break into the home and steal several items and then also commit these murders. The jury deliberated for two hours and then came back with a guilty verdict. The jury imposed the sentence of death. Charles then would be back in the courtroom less than a year later for the murder in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was believed that the gun that killed Russell Lewis Jr. was also the service revolver that was stolen from the officer that he slashed the throat of. The truck that Charles was driving in Arizona was registered to Lewis. That's the main thing that ties him to that particular murder. 
Again, the jury found Charles Coleman guilty, and they again sentenced him to death. This was a political win for those who supported the death penalty. The state of Oklahoma had paused execution since 1966 and used cases like these as a reason why the judgment was needed. Charles Coleman was put to death by lethal injection in 1990. He was the first one to be put to death by lethal injection in the state of Oklahoma, and the first one since the pause in executions. You know, I find this case absolutely amazing. It is almost textbook what a lot of police officers learn in what to do and what not to do. Uh, there were a lot of mistakes made, but also a lot of officers were not trained the same way that they're trained now. So, you know, bringing a person from a regular traffic stop and putting them in the front of your vehicle while you write a ticket, you know, that may not be the smartest thing, especially in a case like this where Charles was able to gain the upper hand on the officer, steal his gun, he slashed his throat, thank goodness he survived. He then used that gun to commit another murder. I mean, I would be devastated if I was that officer knowing that that happened. Anyways, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I did. Make sure you subscribe if you haven't already. That way, whenever we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. Also, join us over on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Oki Investigations. There, we, we have all kinds of memes and you know conversations going on so definitely come over and check that out uh, we're always having a good time anyways guys i will see you next time save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get 16 ounce packs of flavorful angus 90 percent lean ground sirloin for 4.99 each with a digital coupon then buy two get two free on 12 packs of delicious coca-cola pepsi or 7-up all with your card Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.